Uh, we are looking at the moment this term at uh, the Gospel of Matthew. We've come to Matthew 17 this morning. Uh, the reading's down there on your sheet. We try and preach through books of the Bible to make sure God's setting uh, the agenda for us, uh, rather than just the preacher, uh, whatever he happens to think of that week. So I'm going to read this morning from Matthew 17, verse 1. Just by way of context, it's worth knowing that just before this story that we're about to read, um, Jesus has uh, explained to the disciples that he has to go to the cross, okay, that he must die, that he's going to go to Jerusalem, and there he'll be handed over and crucified. And then he said that all those who come after him must also take up their crosses and follow him. And so we come to Matthew 17. Let's hear the Spirit's voice this morning as we read Christ's word. Matthew 17, verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why did the scribes say that Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Let me do some prayer once more, and then we'll look at this corner of God's Word together. Uh, Lord Jesus, you are uh, the Son of God uh, who came to earth that we might know uh, what our God is like. And so we pray you continue that work this morning uh, by the power of your Spirit. Uh, in your kindness, pour him upon us and open our eyes that we might see uh, wonderful things in your word. We might hear wonderful truths from your lips. Uh, bless us, uh, Lord, by the power of your spirit, we ask. Uh, for your glory's sake. Amen. Uh, how do you find uh, the Christian life? If you're someone who calls yourself a Christian, uh, how do you find it? The expectations that Jesus sets out, uh, we might say in one sense, are, well, uh, they're pretty low. At least our expectations are, of it being a kind of roller coaster ride of fun and enjoyment. As I said in, in introducing the, the passage this morning, uh, Jesus has said in the verses just above the ones we've looked at, that if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, we know that's picture language. They take up your cross and following Jesus. We know Christians don't carry wooden crosses around on their backs. But, but just imagine if it was literal. It, what is Jesus saying? Or what would Jesus be asking us to do? He, he'd be asking us to carry around on our backs instruments of death. 
things that are going to kill us. It'd be a bit like saying, look, if you want to come after me, uh, you need to tie a hangman's noose, dangle it around your neck, and then follow me. It's not a pleasant image, is it? Of course, that's not the whole picture of the Christian life. But it is his call to the disciples and to all who come after them in Matthew 16. Again, if you're a Christian, or if you think of yourself that way, do you think of yourself as a, as a dead man walking, a dead woman walking? As your, your life as one of death? Might be very encouraging on Sunday morning, uh, might it? But of course, that's not all Jesus said. But when Jesus issued this huge call to deny ourselves, to put him first, even though that meant suffering, even though following him would lead us into conflict with all sorts of people and beings that otherwise we could have lived in perfect harmony with, think like the devil, the devil doesn't need to attack people who aren't followers of Jesus, think of your own sinful nature, you don't battle with your sin if you don't really care about your sin. So despite the fact we're walking, uh, dead men walking, despite the fact life often feels like death, there's a second half of Jesus' promise of the Christian life. And he goes on, whoever will lose his life, that's the suffering, will gain it. And whoever loses life for my sake will find it. In other words, yes, the Christian life now can feel like death, but it's actually the path to life. That's something strange about it, isn't it? Normally, we think if, if, if I'm heading somewhere good, the, the journey will be good too. But Jesus says, no, no, that the way to eternal life is going to feel at times like death. Sometimes your Christian life will feel like death. And the only thing that would persuade us to, to walk with him, to follow him, would be the certainty of, of the reward at the end. The certainty that actually, although I may suffer now, I will enter glory later. And that, I think, is what this transfiguration passage is all about. He's issued this huge call. And then for some of the disciples, at least, and for us this morning as we look on, we get to see why it is all worthwhile. Just two things to do this morning. Look and listen. There are two commands in the passage. One's a bit more hidden. Verse 5, Matthew tells us to behold, to look, to see the scene. That's what we're going to do first. A bit later, God the Father tells us to listen. But, but let's look first. So this morning, the first thing to do is look and see where you're going. Remember, this, this, this whole part of Matthew is about discipleship, what, what it means to follow Jesus. And so Matthew, or more significantly the Holy Spirit, who works through Matthew, says, look and see where you're going. So let's look. Uh, what do we see as, as we look at this scene? If we could be on a, a nearby mountain, okay, or sat on a cloud, looking at this scene, what would we see? What would we see that would encourage us to know that there is life beyond the grave? That though we suffer now, that there is eternal life, that it's not just a, an empty promise. Or perhaps the first thing that would strike us is the people on the mountain. Uh, behold, verse 3, look, that word again, behold, there appeared Moses and Elijah. Now Moses and Elijah are two prophets from the Old Testament. Uh, we'll come back to what they represent. But, but first and foremost, the striking thing is they're there. These are two guys who've been dead, in Elijah's case for about eight, nine hundred years, Moses' case for 14, 1500 years. And yet they live. They died. They live lives of great suffering, if you were to read their accounts in the Old Testament, on account of God's word. And yet they live. 
they've experienced that the suffering now, glory later pattern. And suddenly they appear. As Peter or James or John, or as we look on from the neighbouring mountain, we're meant to see here that Christ's promise will come true. But of course they're not the centre of the scene, are they? Uh, More striking than, than Moses and Elijah even, is Jesus. Verse 2. He was transfigured. Just a, a word that means transformed, really. A transformed, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Suddenly he is, he is burningly bright. His face and his clothes. Now, what's going on? I think what's going on is we're being, if you like, we're being shown what Jesus will become. Uh, what he will become after his resurrection. This isn't God, um, Jesus suddenly sort of saying, look, I'm, I'm not just a man, I'm God as well. Here's my, my divine nature. You can't see the divine nature. You can't see God in, in Father, Son, or, or Holy Spirit. You can't see God, literally. So, so it's, not, it's not the disciples suddenly see that, that Jesus' divine nature. No, rather, what they see is Jesus in all his glory. Uh, Jesus, as he will be, when he's raised from the dead and ascended back to heaven. Jesus, when he gets to the end of the journey, it's almost as if we press fast forward on the DVD and shot forward, and they're being given a little foretaste of the end of the movie, okay, the end of the story. When he came to earth, Jesus came as a normal man, didn't he? He's the son of God, fully God in every way. But he became one of us, and he became one of us in, in weakness. Uh, he, he didn't come as a, as a Superman. Those kind of Superman movies, Clark Kent. Okay, if you were to, I don't know, if, if, you, if you were to prick a, you know, take a little thumbtack and prick it into him, into Superman, okay, the thumbtack breaks, doesn't it? You can't actually hurt it. He looks like a man, but he's really Superman. That's not Jesus. Jesus is a real man. Okay, you prick Jesus, he bleeds. Uh, you remove food from Jesus for, for a week, and he's hungry. Jesus goes on a long journey, and he's tired. In other words, he suffers like you and me. And he weeps. He knows what it is to be abandoned, to mourn, to grieve, to thirst. Ultimately, of course, he's going to know what it is to die. He's a real man. A man of sorrows, as he's described in Isaiah. And that is all the disciples have seen so far. Yes, they've seen him do amazing miracles, but, but they, he doesn't look any different. He looks... Well, just like anyone else. You'd walk past him in the street. If you stood next to him in the queue for bread, you wouldn't have taken a second look. Not just by what he looked like. And so here for a minute on the mountain, Jesus' glory is revealed. This is what he's going to be like when he's risen from the dead, when he's the king of glory. It's as if so far, imagine you've got yourself a new Porsche and then driven it out into the, into the countryside, driven it through mud and slime and dirt and it's just completely covered over. When you look at Jesus so far in Matthew's Gospel, you, you can't see who he's going to become. But just for a moment, all that is stripped back and we see that he is going to be this king of glory. And again, it's meant to reassure us okay, that there is a future, that, that life isn't just about being man of sorrows, but there is glory to come. For Jesus, but also for us. 
Because if we look on, we, we don't just see the picture, we also see a pattern being acted out here on the mountain. Uh, this, stay with me here, okay? This takes a little thinking about it. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, uh, you need to know that, 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 that someone who, who sort of knows the Old Testament, or for that matter, Peter, James, and John, who were up the mountain, who knew their Old Testament, knew the stories that, that happened before Jesus. But as they saw what was going on, that things would be sort of clicking. They'd be having a kind of, ah, moment, a kind of aha moment. This is a bit like, it's a bit like two stories in the Old Testament. Like what have we got in, in Matthew 17? We've got God's son, this is my son, on a mountain uh, after six days. You see that? Verse one, after six days, all this action happens. But it's not the first time we've seen a period of six days pass and then God's son appear on a mountain. In fact, if you open the Bible at the very first page, that's what you'll see. Uh, right back in Genesis, we read the account of creation. And on the sixth day, God makes man, Adam. And he calls Adam his son. Adam is called the son of God. Obviously, he's divine, of course, he's just a man. But God takes men and women as his children. Adam is called God's son, the first person, actually, in the whole Bible to be called God's son. And where is he put? He's put on a mountain. Uh, Eden is a mountain. The Garden of Eden is a mountain. We know that part because the rivers flow out of it, we're told in Genesis 2. And we're told explicitly in, in, in the book of Ezekiel that Eden is the mountain of the Lord. So the Bible begins uh, with a man after six days being on a mountain. And, and if all had continued well, well, it should have been a story of blessing and paradise. Uh, the seventh day has no end in Genesis. Remember all the days of creation, you know, there was evening and morning, the first day, the second day, the third day. The seventh day doesn't have an end. The seventh day, the Sabbath day, it's meant to be a day of rest. And I'm sure it was a literal day. I mean, I'm sure the sun rose and set and all that but, but the idea is that, that God's plan was for people to live in paradise forever. Not to live in a world ruined by sin and grief and suffering, but a world of glory where his children could enjoy this glorious world. But the sun ruins it. Adam ruins it. Rebels against God. And we're all cast into the kind of lives we live now. Because of Adam, we die. Because we, of Adam, we get diseases like COVID. Because of Adam, uh, we suffer and weep. And so if we were to flick a few more pages uh, along in the Old Testament, we, we meet God's next son. Uh, this time, it's not just one person. It's a whole group of people. The people of Israel are described as God's son. In fact, in Matthew's Gospel a bit earlier, Matthew is quoted the prophet Isaiah, who says, Out of Egypt I called my son. He's talking about the people of Israel, a whole nation is the son of God now. And again, they come to a mountain. Do you remember? They come to Mount Sinai. They've been rescued from Pharaoh out of Egypt, all those plagues, across the Red Sea, and they come to a mountain. And here the resemblance with Matthew 17 is even more striking. You can't get a whole nation, there's thousands of them. You can't get them all up the mountain, obviously. And so one man goes up with three friends. Moses goes up, the leader, with three friends, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. Just as here, Jesus goes up with three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John. Uh, they go up a high mountain, both mountains are described as high mountains. Uh, this is all in uh, Exodus 23-34. Uh, what happens? Well, a cloud comes down. It comes down in, in uh, Exodus, it comes down in Matthew 17. It's the cloud of God's presence. Uh, all the action happens after six days. Moses has to wait on the mountain six days, and then God speaks. Again, Matthew tells us after six days that this transfiguration happens. Now, he doesn't normally give us time markers. 
he doesn't bother telling us that, I don't know, the feeding of the 5,000 happened four days after the feeding of the 4,000, and the healing of the leper happened three days after the healing of the paralytic. No, he doesn't normally bother. But here he's deliberately put the detail in, all to echo this story. Uh, Sinai, the second mountain where God's son, the nation of Israel, came, in order that God might bless them and give them the promised land. Except they blow it too. They rebel, disobey God, and the world again descends into chaos. What's the point? It's just sort of like the sort of thing you do in English lit at a GCSE where you're looking at Shakespeare plays and saying, oh, that's a bit like this, and allusions. No, no, no. Matthew's got a point. God's got a point as he writes this. And the point, the point is immense good news for us. God began the Bible by saying, I want to have people, sons and daughters, of course, who will live forever in paradise with me, live in glory with me. That is my plan. But we blew it. Adam, Adam just means man, it's like every man, like, he blew it. The nation of Israel, you know, God's people who'd been given the Bible, been sent prophets, were, they were the religious man, if you like, they blew it, they failed. But God is so committed to getting you and me into paradise, into glory, that he comes down and becomes one of us. And he takes on flesh, to use John's language in order that he can carry us there. None of us will ever earn our way to heaven. None of us deserve to live there. I mean, yes, Adam blew it, and yes, Israel blew it, but frankly, if, if it was another mountain you were taken up and told to, you'd blow it too, and so would I. You know that by looking at your own life. You will sense that you're not worthy of heaven, not worthy of glory. And sometimes, perhaps especially in 2020, you'll wonder if you'll ever make it. Am I going to stay faithful? Will I still be believing next week, next year, 10 years, 20 years? What if my sin gets too much? What if the carrying the cross, it just gets too heavy? What if I bottle it? What if I blow it? And God says, no, this is my son. This is the one who's going to bring glory. You won't make it on your own. So I am going to come down and do it for you. In other words, Jesus is showing us not just what he will be, but what we will be. Jesus, the Son of God didn't need new glory, did he? He didn't need to become man. He wasn't gaining anything. No, he came down to take us there. So at the Man of Transfiguration, we look at Jesus shining and glorified. We see what we will become when Christ returns or after we die. And we see that one day we too will be holy and pure that the battle you've currently experienced with sin will be over. But we, we see that one day uh, we'll be powerful, radiant, shining as the sun at the battles you face now with sickness and disease and mental health, the struggles you face with, with the world, with family, with whatever it might be, they will be over. The weaknesses you feel will be gone because God will glorify you. He will bring you with Christ into this heavenly kingdom. Look and see where you're going. However hard it is to live for Christ right now, it will be worth it, and he will get you there. Some of you are students, and you are almost certainly going to be the only 
Christian in your flat, or the only Christian on your course, or whatever it might be, that you, you're not going to be in the majority. Everything will be saying, no, no, just compromise. But become like us. Don't, don't live wholeheartedly for Jesus. It's all right to believe in him, go to church on Sunday, fine, hour, but don't give your life to him. Don't make sacrifices for him. And Jesus says, no. Come, I will get you safely home. And so commit wholeheartedly to following me. Take up your cross. It is worth it. Look and see what you'll become. See where you're going. But then listen and hear how you'll get there. And the first command is, behold, uh, this voice, the, the one thing we've not talked about yet, this voice comes from heaven, do you see? Uh, a voice, verse uh, 6, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him, verse 5, sorry. It's the voice of God, isn't it? The voice of God the Father, booming out of the heavens. And I think the first time, I, I, well, in previous times when I've preached on this pastor or read it myself, I thought, okay, well, this is God's pretty simply saying, listen to Jesus. And so you start thinking, well, how does that apply to my life? He said, well, it means I need to, to read the Bible. Uh, and I need to, to listen when someone's preaching at church or, or in my home group or community group, or whatever it might be. It's all about God's word, listening to Jesus. And that, that is true. Those are all good things to do. Do read your Bibles, do listen in community group or home group or CU group. Uh, do listen on Sunday when, when people preach, if they're preaching God's word. But I think there's something more going on here. Uh, certainly, uh, certainly we listen to everything Jesus says, but, but there's something particular we're meant to listen to. And it's a thing I think that we're most likely to forget. Uh, just, just look at when God speaks. Look at when God speaks. Verse 4, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And it's while he was still speaking that the cloud comes and the voice comes. In other words, God interrupts Peter. It's not all silence and they're all praying and meditating and then God speaks. No, Peter is speaking. Hey, I'm going to build these tents for you. And, and God interrupts. Now, what's the significance? Why does that matter? The significance is found in remembering what Peter has, has just been doing. Okay, just before this story, so it's easy to see, but because of COVID, we can't hand things around all the rest of it. So you can't see unless you've got your own Bible. The passage just before. But, but just before, Jesus has explained that he has got to go to the cross. Okay, and Peter has clicked that Jesus is the Son of God, but the Christ. Okay, so in Matthew 16, uh, Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and Jesus says, bless are you, Simon. You've got it. That's right. And now you understand who I am. Understand that I've got to go and die for people. Okay, this is how I'm going to rescue people. This is how I'm going to bring in my kingdom. And Peter takes him aside and says, no, Jesus, you're joking. Don't die. Forget the cross stuff. Just do the power stuff. All your miracles. All, your, all that power in your fingers. Just don't build a kingdom. Don't do the dying stuff. I don't want the cross. And Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. One of the most striking words in the gospel. That, that all the way through Matthew, Satan doesn't want Jesus to go to the cross. We thought about this last week for those of you who are here. You know, he tries to tempt Jesus to just take glory without the cross. You know, you're the Son of God, you just take it all anyway. Don't bother dying for those scumbags who've rejected you. But Jesus said, No, I must go by the cross. Because that is the only way I'll be able to bring everyone else with me. Of course, Jesus could have glory without bringing us. But Jesus committed to going to the cross. And when the temptations finished in the desert, well, we're told that Satan withdrew and waited for another chance to tempt Jesus. 
But Satan doesn't really reappear on the scene, not directly in Matthew's Gospel. But he does through Peter. He uses Peter to try and persuade Jesus. It's a subtle attack, getting Jesus' closest friend to say, no, don't die, Jesus. Just go for the root of glory. And here again on the Mount of Transfiguration, just six days later, Peter is doing the same thing. When he says, let me build tents for you, build tabernacles, what he's saying to Jesus is, look, this is brilliant. I mean, can you imagine? It's hard to sort of think of a parallel in our own society. But, you know, you, you're up a mountain, and suddenly, you know, King Richard the Lionheart and William the Conqueror are there. Like, Whoa, what is going on here? This is amazing. But Peter is thinking, this is fantastic. Moses and Elijah, the, the, the two chief prophets of the Old Testament, they're here. And look at you, Jesus. You've got all shiny and bright and white and powerful. This is going to be amazing. Just think what we can do. So we'll set up headquarters here. We'll set up camp on the mountain. We can really forget all that cross stuff now, Jesus. Look at, look at what God's done to you. He's turned you into this shiny, shiny being who's, wow, here. It's all about here. Lord, it's good that we're here, verse 4. Let me build tents here. Satan is up the mountain, in other words. Satan has crept up uh, together with the three. And, and, and in the person of Peter, is trying to persuade Jesus just to leave it at the glory, to avoid the cross again. And as Peter is saying these words, as Satan is trying to persuade Jesus not to go to the cross, the voice from heaven comes, interrupts, while he was still speaking, verse 5, the cloud comes and the voice said, this is my beloved son. God is actually quoting himself. <laughs> Quoting the Old Testament from Isaiah, uh, where, where he, in, at the beginning of a whole set of prophecies about Jesus coming and dying, the prophecies that have the famous verses in, like, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, uh, the servant songs, as they're called. At the beginning of those, they, they begin by, with God saying, here is the one in whom I delight. He is the one in whom I delight. Want to know who I'm most pleased with in all creation? It's Jesus, says God the Father. And he's not talking so much there about, you know, about the Trinity, about the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Spirit. No, that's not what he's talking about specifically here. It's Jesus, Jesus the God-man, who's come to die for people. The one who, although he, he deserves all glory and no suffering, is going to suffer in order to rescue people. And I'm delighted with him. God is most pleased with Jesus' his Son when he goes to the cross for the sake of us, for you and me. That is what pleases him most. And again, there's such good news for us here. Uh, it's good news for sinners, for weak people, for broken people. This is heaven confirming Jesus' plans. In fact, in many ways, on the Mount of Transfiguration, what we get is exactly what we got in Matthew 16, but just this time coming from heaven. So in Matthew 16, we have Jesus saying, yes, I'm the Son of God, who's come to die for you. And here we get heaven itself with God's voice coming down saying, this is my son. He has come to die for you. This is the one in whom I'd like. Here is a suffering servant. And God says to Peter, stop trying to persuade Christ not to go to the cross. Listen to him, that the only way of salvation is through death. Understand that he loves you so much that however hard you try and persuade him not to die, he is going to do it. It's as if God is saying, so that Satan overhears, this will not work. So much is my son's love for his people, that he will go to the cross 
in order to bring them to glory, in order that they can share in this transfiguration, this resurrection life. And God the Father says, and so much is my love that this is what pleases me most, Satan. The most amazing thing any man has done is die in order that others might be saved. In other words, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Father and Son, hand in hand, say, I am going to make sure that my people end up in glory. The Son says, I will die. The Father says, yes, and that is so pleasing to me. That is how much Father and Son want you in glory. That is how committed they are to this plan of having their children, their sons, glorified. Yes, we threw it away in Eden. Yes, we blew it at Mount Sinai. But they desire it more than you or me. So do you fear God? Do you worry you won't make it home to heaven? There is real hope for you in this passage. One says it's right to fear God. The disciples do, don't they? And when the disciples hear the voice, they fall on their faces and they're terrified. That's what happens when people meet God in the Bible. And the cloud comes and they're terrified. They fall on their... That's always what happens when someone comes in, into the presence of God. Even, even the seraphim and the cherubim, these mighty angelic beings, can't handle God's presence. No wonder Peter, James and John are on, flat on their faces. But isn't it striking what Jesus says? Rise, don't be afraid. See what happens? Okay, imagine you're a blind person on the mountain. Okay. And you couldn't see, you didn't see the cloud, you didn't see Moses and Elijah, you didn't see Peter, you didn't see Jesus shining. What would, the, what would the experience be like for you if, if, if it's just your ears that's letting you know what's going on? What would you hear? You'd hear God's voice from heaven. Behold, this is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And, and you know that's God's voice, boom from the heavens. So you may well down, fall down in terror too. God is here speaking. How can I survive in God's presence? And you hear the last words of God, listen to him, listen to Jesus. And what's the next thing you hear? Jesus saying, rise up, don't be afraid. God the Father says, listen to Jesus. And Jesus says, do not be afraid. Rise up. That's what he says to you this morning. So many things will stand against you. So many things will make bearing your cross hard. So many things in life will want to oppose everything you are if you're a Christian. And even in your own mind, you might start to fear that God is against you. After what you've done or failed to do, after what you've thought or said, and you begin, all of us at times, begin to even fear God himself. We need to back away from God, back away, back away. And so we need to listen to God. That's why it's such good news that God himself says, listen to Jesus. And Jesus says, do not be afraid. Even in the presence of God, you can stand up because I am the one who's come to carry you home. Weak Christian, suffering Christian, sinning Christian. You needn't look at yourself at all. There is no strength in you, and that's okay. There's no real health in you, and that's okay. There's no power in you, and that is okay. Yes, all the things you see around you that terrify you, might seem much stronger than you, and they may be stronger than you, but they are not stronger than Christ. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And he says to this morning, 
rise up, stand up, do not fear. He is for you. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you that our lives are not in our hands. And we thank you so much that our arrival in heaven is not based on anything we do, any strength in us, any spirituality in us, any holiness in us, but rather you've taken it all into your hands, that your Son has come down, become one of us, in order that he might carry us home. And so we pray that you'd lift our eyes and see what we will become. Enable us to have certain hope of resurrection life. And we pray as you strengthen that hope in us, that you will enable us too to be more committed to Christ in this life. That even when it means suffering for his sake, battling with uh, things we otherwise needn't battle, uh, we pray that we do so in confidence that Christ is for us. Uh, that he has told us to stand, to rise, and not fear. Uh, give us this supernatural hope. Uh, we pray in his name and for his sake. Amen.